Well, I just put my hymnal down, but I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal and turn to the back to the portion of the confession. Last time I was here, while you were going through the confession, I was asked to teach on chapter 24 of the Civil Magistrate, and I went back to to look at what I did, and I somehow squeezed it out to 61 minutes, and I still had a whole lot more to do. But that's not because there's necessarily more in the confession, that's just because sometimes I can't be quiet. Um, Particularly this afternoon, I want us to take up uh, the part of the confession that is in paragraph 3 of chapter 24. I had mentioned that I had more to say on this, and you, many of you requested that I go on and teach on this. Uh, let, let me say at the outset, I am not teaching on this because I think there's a great need for this. Uh, I'm doing this in part because well, there might be a great need not for the situation of Temple Reform Baptist, but just in general. Uh, we think that your greatest need right now as a church is the doctrine of the church. However, as I was teaching my children, too much of a good thing can be a weary and a bad thing. So maybe it's good that we take a break from the doctrine of the church and come back to just reaffirming some concepts that I would argue are very biblical. And so on page 683 of our hymnal, we have in our Confession of Faith, chapter 24, paragraph 3, the following, that civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection, which is, by the way, a chain from the Westminster, the Westminster reads obedience, but I would say that the more reformed and correct uh, confessional doctrine should be subjection, and all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake, which is drawn from Romans 13, and we ought to make supplications and prayer for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. What I want to focus on this afternoon is what I'm referring to as what our confession says, submission to all things lawful. The opposite truth is also the case. Resistance, dutiful resistance to all things unlawful. Given the last two or three years, the the issue has come up. How far do we go? How much should we submit and things of that nature? And there has been a lot of clarifying that we've seen happen over these last few years about what does Romans 13 teach and other passages like this? What What do we mean in our confession? That subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord. What does that mean exactly? And without going into a full exposition of Romans 13, what I wanted to do this afternoon is, if the positive statement is true, that according to our, our confession, the civil magistrate, magistrate is due subjection in all lawful things, I would submit to you, brethren, that the opposite is also implied. That when it comes to all things unlawful, it is our duty not to submit but rather to dutifully resist. Now we need to pose the question, what is meant by, in our confession, all lawful things? Because that is what we are confessing, that the Bible tells us that we are to be yielded. And I think that is a good way to put it, all lawful things. We also need to hear the necessary opposite. What does it mean that 
there ought to be resistance to all unlawful things. So first, what is meant by lawful, and then what are the categories of unlawful things? What I want to do for you is give a taxonomy of tyranny, if you will. Um, What are the categories of tyranny that I would put under the label unlawful things that should be resisted? So before we get to that category, I want to take up what is meant by lawful. Probably shouldn't have closed this, but... Um, if you if you go back to paragraph twenty or chapter twenty three, the word lawful is used a couple of occasions in the confession outside of uh, chapter twenty four. So it helps us get a give a context of what did our uh, particular Baptist Puritan Baptist forefathers mean? What were the Puritan divines meaning when they used the terminology of lawful? Go back to. Uh, If you look at all of paragraph 23, notice it says of lawful oaths. So the entire paragraph is given over what is lawful. And the notion is implied a lawful oath is a part of religious worship. And the focus is on the oath, not what is lawful. And so uh, the notion of what is lawful has already been presumed. Uh, We might go back a little bit farther back to chapter 21. Let's go back to chapter 21 in paragraph 4. When it comes to the matter of of conscience and liberty. Um, I'm sorry, Westminster 21.4. Let me um, remember where this is located. I think it's 22.4 actually. Yes, I'm sorry. So go to 22.4. 22.4 says of religious worship, prayer is to be made for things lawful. Notice that on page 682, uh, chapter 22, paragraph 4. Prayer is to be made for things lawful. And for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. So there are, uh, it is right and good that we would pray for things that are lawful, but to pray for something not lawful would be to pray for something unseemly, something unjust, something unrighteous. In other words, if we're not to pray for something, Unlawful, then it would seem to make sense that we ought to resist that which which is unlawful. Uh, the 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 Presbyterian Robert Shaw commenting on Westminster because uh, that comes right out of Westminster there at twenty two four he says this prayer is to be made for things that are lawful comma according to the will of God. In other words, what is lawful is what is according to the will of God. Now, as we understand the will of God, we understand that there is the will of decree, what God has sovereignly decreed before the foundations of the earth, whatsoever comes to pass. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about what God commands, his will of command, that we are to pray for uh, uh, prayers to be made for things that are lawful or according to the will of God, according to what God has commanded, according to the law of God. That's why we use the term lawful. And so as it pertains to what is lawful for the civil magistrate, what do we find is lawful for the magistrate? Well, all of Scripture tells us, but particularly Romans 13, verses 3 through 4, tells us what is the job or the ministry of the civil magistrate. So if we were to open our Bibles and turn to Romans 13, verses 3 through 4, you would see exactly what it is our confession is citing. When our confession says at... Paragraph 3, civil magistrates being set up by God, quote, for the ends aforesaid. What are those ends? It would be the decreed, or I'm sorry, not the decreed will of God, but the commanded will of God that we read about in Romans 13 through 4. Here's what the, the magistrate is supposed to do. 
This is what their lawful role is. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the? Uh, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God. Speaking of the magistrate, he is God's minister, God's deacon, if you will, to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, God's deacon, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. This is in the context, if you go back to the end of chapter 12, we don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, verse, 12, uh, verse 19 says of Romans 12. I will repay, repay, says the Lord. Well, how does he do that? He has an avenger, the same uh, root word in the Greek there that is used in chapter 13, verse 4, that God has given over vengeance to his civil magistrate, but obviously in the confines of what is lawful. So as it pertains to what is lawful for the civil magistrate, we have Romans 13, verses 3 through 4 to guide us. And anything beyond those teachings, anything in conflict with those teachings, anything that would encroach upon other spheres of government, we talked about last time, I used the illustration of a slot car track, all right, uh, that if the government were to interfere on in another sphere, maybe the sphere of the church or the sphere of the family, Anything that would encroach upon other spheres of governmental authority, they must be considered unlawful. So to pray for such unlawful things, that would be an affront to God. That we would pray that God would do something unjust or unlawful or unrighteous, we ought not do. And therefore, we must submit to, the, to our civil magistrate so long as they are governing by lawful means. Again, it says, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded. But the caveat is what is lawful. So we might say that if lawful or if magistrates legislate, execute, or adjudicate something that is not lawful, something that is not according to God's word dictated by God for his magistrates, it's not within their sphere of authority to do, then Romans 13, 7 now applies. What does verse 7 say? Render therefore to all their due, or, or what is due them. Pause for a second. That is Paul's statement that you don't render what they demand. You render what is due. And he gives two categories. He gives categories of of financial what is due, taxes and, and custom whom custom is due. Because if they are going to bear the sword, they have to have funds by which to make a sword and to protect But then we render them, it says, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. What is due? What is due? It's not an unqualified, you you render them fear, you render them honor, you render them what is due. And to help us understand that, Proverbs 28.1 gives us a helpful means by which we can wisely navigate that. You might want to write this down, I'll read it for you. Proverbs 28.1, render therefore to all their due. I'm sorry, that was uh, Romans 13. Uh, Proverbs 28.1. As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. So if we were to compare Scripture with Scripture, there is a time and place where honor is not fitting. It's not due. And we have a good illustration. It's not fitting that there would be snow in the summer. It's almost not fitting that we'd have snow this month either. But we did Honor is not fitting for a fool. So fear and honor are not befitting a magistrate that is either negligent in his duty or tyrannical in his rule. 
This would include the magistrate usurping other spheres of authority and asserting his own rule in matters that do not pertain to the civil sphere. So I think there's a, a solid biblical case that could be made that we are rightly to submit to all things lawful from the civil magistrate. But the opposite also applies. I believe for the Christian, there is a duty to resist in all things unlawful. Now, let me also give a caveat before I I give these 10 categories. Just because there might be a, a wicked regime, so to speak, doesn't mean you go get pitchforks or, in our case, you know, guns and attack. What resistance means here, I'm not going to go into detail. Just know it does not mean that you, you draw the sword. Uh, we as a church, that is not our weapon as a church. Now, you as an individual citizen, under the guidance of a duly elected magistrate, that's a different category. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is... Uh, resistance here could look a lot of different ways in a lot of different shapes and forms. But I also need to give another caveat. I had someone ask me the other day, should we stop paying our taxes because we know our tax dollars are going to you know, abortion? I said no. Have they still, do they still, does your government still keep Romans 13, 3 through 4 at a bare minimum? Are they still... Punishing evildoers, maybe not all evildoers not doing it correctly, and are they still protecting the good? If they are still doing that, then yes, you need to keep doing it. You still have reason because they are still lawfully uh, carrying out their task according to Romans 13, 3. So that's just one example of, I can give you 10 categories of tyranny. That doesn't mean if they fail in any one place, you just stop paying your taxes. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a point where there is dutiful resistance and that resistance is not going to look like what the world tells us it is. It's not going to look like January 6th. Whether the the media has given a false narrative or not, you know, I'm not even going to go down that path right now. The point is, riots are not subjection in all lawful matters. So how we take this is going to look differently because we see resistance characterized in various ways throughout the Bible. And so what I want to do is now give a taxonomy of tyranny. Really what I'm doing is I'm using you as guinea pigs for my book. Uh, This is a a chapter in my book, and I want to see if what I'm saying now is convincing to you that there is scriptural place that Romans 13 does not demand unqualified subjection. It demands subjection to things lawful. And it also implies resistance to un, uh, things unlawful. So the, the, the common notion that you'll hear is that the, the primary evangelical response that we heard in 2020 and 2021 is that we are only to resist when we are forced to sin. I heard that a lot. I would have been one of the first ones to say that had I, until I started to probe a little bit more and, and meditate on this a little bit more. And I want to say to you, brethren, that does not go nearly far enough to say that. And so first, let's, let's take up number one of my list of 10 here of a taxonomy of tyranny or, or what I would say is dutiful resistance for the Christian. If you are enforced to sin, you must resist. Now, that might 
be different in different circumstances. What, what, are, what do we mean by sin, first of all? Well, our catechisms teach us sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The children's catechism, thankfully, goes in a little bit deeper. What is lack of conformity? Not being or doing what God commands. What is transgression? Doing what God forbids. In other words, when we compare what sin is with the law of God, it's either sins of omission or sins of commission. Lack of conformity, not doing what God commands, or sins of commission, doing what God forbids. We have great examples of this in the Bible. That when it comes to uh, being enforced to sin, the Hebrew midwives, back in Exodus chapter 1, refused to disobey God's law to put babies to death. They resisted. And, and some might even say that they told the Pharaoh, uh, told him a lie for the sake of saving the, the, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew uh, mothers and babies. They're just so vigorous, we don't even get a chance to do anything. That could have been a lie, actually. Um, so there is a good example of, of uh, being forced to sin by uh, transgressing, transgressing God's law. They said, we are not going to obey that rule where you said we have to kill these babies. Uh, the sin of omission, when the apostles in Acts 5 were told you cannot preach in Christ's name. Well, that is a sin of omission because they were told you must preach. And that's when they said, whether it's good for you or not, we, we must to obey God is better than to obey men. And so the first category is one we're very familiar with, and that gives us a good platform. Well, what does resistance look like? It looks like, I don't care what you say, God says, I can't do that, so I won't kill those babies. God says, I can't stop talking the name of Christ, so I'm going to keep. That is resistance. You need to understand, resistance doesn't look like, let's storm the capital. Resistance looks like, I'm going to be faithful to Christ. Secondly, so that one's the easy category. Secondly, another uh, form of dutiful resistance is when the magistrate rules without law. Rules without law. And, and, and this is fundamentally the most basic idea of tyranny, that a tyrant is one who rules without law. This, uh, this is such a necessary part of the magistrate. This is why even in the law of the Medes and Persians, if you will, in Daniel 6, it says that even kings couldn't contravene law. That was so binding upon them. They were so worried that a king would become a tyrant in the Medes and the Persians that... Um, they, they had this notion that the king couldn't even go against law. Uh, interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 17 records that Israelite kings had to make a copy of their own law. Why? What's, what's the necessary consequence there? That kings had to submit to the law. They could not rule without law. A good example of this is uh, King Ahab when he wanted Naboth's vineyard. How he goes to get the vineyard obviously was underhanded and tyrannical, but he doesn't go against law to do it, does he? He asked for Naboth's vineyard, and knowing that uh, there is uh, uh, hereditary inheritance land rights, knowing that at the year of Jubilee it would return back to him, there are reasons that Naboth could have said yes, but Naboth did not have to say yes, which, by the way, he was not breaking Romans 13. For Naboth to say, no, I'm not going to sell you my land. I don't have to. It's mine. It's given to me by right of the inheritance through the promised land. I don't have to sell it to you. He was not breaking Romans 13, and... Ahab did not break uh, his duty 
by forcing it. But what does he do? He listens to Jezebel and says, well, let me come up with some false witnesses, accusations. We'll have them stoned to death according to the law. And so they use the rule of law in an underhanded way. And so uh, the, the very notion that a, a, a ruler, a magistrate must rule with law, the implication, the opposite would be any rule without law must be resisted. And we see this in a couple places. I want to point them out to you by the Apostle Paul himself. Go to Acts 16, verse 22. When you see rule without law, what does the Apostle Paul do? Does he roll over and play dead? No, he resists. And again, resistance does not have to mean pick up your AR-15s. Acts 16, 22. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. And then it says in verse 22, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. By the way, that's resistance. This is what resistance looks like. You're praising and singing to God in jail. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone, everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakened from their sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He doesn't kill himself, he actually converts to Christianity. So this is an example of being persecuted, being a blessing. Skipping down then. It says, verse 34, Now when he had brought them into the, his house, he set food before them, speaking of the jailer, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So in other words, the next day, they cool their, cool their jets, and they were just, let's get rid of them. It's not that big of a deal. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, These magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. And Paul says, Sure, submit in all things. No. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly. In other words, against the law uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison against the law. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. In other words, they need to publicly own their mistake before we leave. They ruled without law. They need to fix that. This is Paul resisting. And notice the result here. That the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Why? Because they ruled without law and they know that there's consequences that comes with that. We see the same thing. Paul will do this again in Acts 22 where uh, he, was mis he was abused as a Roman citizen. He flexes his rights because when you rule without law, Paul resisted that. When the magistrates were ruling against the law, Paul resisted. And we have to ask the question, are we to think that Paul went against his own uh, writings of scripture from Romans 13, perish the thought. I don't think Paul ever broke Romans 13 in these passages of scripture. Both times, the magistrate fear because they know that they must obey the law or they get punished themselves. So uh, when a tyrant or, or when a magistrate rules without law, he is a tyrant and must be resisted. Third, so that's number one was when you're forced to sin. Two, when they rule without law. Thirdly, when there is what I've called spherical encroachment. Remember the, the, the spheres of the family, the church, and civil government. When a sphere rules in another sphere, or when that sphere either exceeds its, uh, its authority, or it fails to perform the limits of its own authority, it must be resisted. Now, there's a lot of caveats there, so let me give you some examples. 
just to make sure that we don't let time get away from us. I'll give you these passages. You can go back and look at them, but I'll try to summarize the story. Um, in 2 Chronicles 2, Uzziah was ready to go into the temple and to take matters into his own hands in terms of invoking whether God will give him success. And as he goes in the temple, the priests stop him. The priest, by the way, priests in the Old Testament, those were some bad dudes. And by bad, I mean, they, you wouldn't mess with them. Throughout the Old Testament, the priest would do, a, they, their job was to kill. Now, maybe not humans, but they were around blood all the time. Their knives were sharp. They had no problem interposing uh, on behalf of the temple and saying to Uzziah, you're not coming in here. They interposed, they resisted him forcefully with arms, in fact, because the civil magistrate was intervening in the sphere of the church, Old Covenant. So you see an example of the priest said, no, we're not going to let you come in. They resisted. Or what about when a sphere exceeds its authority? All right, we, uh, we, this is kind of the, the concept of overreach. Probably we'll see some examples of this. But, uh, or it could look like when it fails to perform its duty. Uh, this, is, this is when I, I told those people you know, who said, well, we should stop paying taxes because it's going to kill abortion. I said, well, the moment they stop sending police to my house or to protect my business is the moment I will stop paying them taxes. That's the point where they have failed to do their duty to, um, as Romans 13 says, to harm or to punish the evildoer and protect and praise the good. At that point, they have failed, and therefore I will resist giving them my taxes. Because really, what are they then but just uh, organized mob coming for you know protection? When they're not going to actually protect you, they're just going to take your money that's, that's, that's thievery. That's not actually a, a lawful civil magistrate. A good example of this is uh, Saul not killing Agag. In 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul, your job is to kill all these people. Saul does almost all of it. And so what happens? He fails in his duty. All right, his sphere, as, as, the, as the magistrate, was to carry out that duty. And so because he fails in that sphere, uh, Samuel the prophet ends up finishing the job for him. So, spherical encroachment is a third category. Fourth category. Like I said, I got ten of these, so I, I can't spend too much time on any one of them. Fourth category. Uh, uh, laws of special interest, category A. <laughs> laws of special interest that are laws unequally created or unequally enforced to show partiality. So, laws of special interest that are unequally created or unequally enforced uh, so as to show partiality. We need to understand that impartiality is vital for justice. And in, uh, or, um, the, to go against impartiality is to go against the moral law of God. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.21, if you want to look there, also James chapter 2. But the principle is found in 1 Timothy 5. 21. Actually, it's found all throughout Scripture, the very notion of law. But 1 Timothy 5.21 says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. The command is that we do not do anything with partiality. This is why we have the picture of justice being blindfolded because uh, it is to be equal and fair. James 2, in the sphere of the church, uh, talks about when someone poor comes into you, don't put the poor in the back, but the rich person, you know, oh, sit up here, my friend. No, you are to be impartial with both uh, the poor and the rich when it comes to worship. 
uh, th- this, uh, this concept of judicial equality, laws created uh, equally for all parties or laws enforced equally to all parties, uh, you find in places like Leviticus 19, 35 through 36, which says, You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. So it's talking about the judicial giving economic checks, that you have to do things economically correctly with fair scales of measurement and weight and volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah, and honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is government regulating that commerce be done equitably. So any law that would be created to give unequal, to give partial uh, benefits to some but not others, or any laws unequally enforced, that should be resisted. My biblical example of this would be Haman. In the book of Esther, Haman came up with a law that it was directed towards a specific group of people, namely the Jews. And that was an unjust law. Now, had there been a sect of people or segment of society that was, as Haman described, uh, uh, the, the, the type that were insurrectionists at that time, then maybe there would have been cause for that. But Haman was just out to get the Jews. And so that law was created uh, unequally created for, an, uh, uh, for partiality against the people of God at that time. And so that law was unjust. And notice, did the, did the Israelites just say, yeah, go ahead and kill us. There's a law, Romans 13. No. They actually had a law created saying, we are now legally allowed to fight back. Their resistance, which took on a physical force because they were physically threatened, they had put in law that they were allowed to um, uh, protect themselves. Uh, and, and assault anyone who was going to assault them. So uh, there's a good example of any laws of special interest that are laws unequally created or unequally enforced should be resisted. By the way, that is a lot of what was happening in 2020 and 2021. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, when you think of people who were in, in uh, beauty parlors while, while all the other beauty parlors were shut down, that should have been resisted. Christians should have said, we ought not to do that. We are not going to stand for that. Second category of laws of special interest. So that was laws of special interest A. I think that was four. This is laws of special interest B, which is number five, that are laws unequally imposed upon the magistrate. In other words, there is an equal law for everyone, but they might interpret it as rules for thee, but not for me. That is also, that must be resisted. And I think of King Herod, who beheaded John the Baptist. Now, this is an interesting situation because here you have John the Baptist going to the civil magistrate as a prophet of God saying, you are in sin. What was his sin? The sin of King Herod was that he was having his brother's wife. The law of God, Leviticus 18.16, Leviticus 20.21, forbids that. While, while the brother is still alive, to have your brother's wife, that was forbidden. Now, I, I, I want to say this. Probably this was not well, you know, a common practice in that society. In fact, uh, around the the well, the, the watering hole of the people in a town, that would have been expunged like that. But because King Herod was king, he thought he could get away with it. In other words, that's a law for you, but I don't have to uphold that law. So here you had a law that was impartially. Uh, put on everybody, but the magistrate himself said, I don't need to adhere to that. So it was a law unequally imposed upon the ruler. 
And so John the Baptist says, you're in sin, you're breaking the law of God, you need to fix this. And so Herod has him killed. That's another issue, but for, for another um, uh, occasion. All right, so there was two different kinds of laws of special interest. Special interest that the law is created for one segment of society, but not others. All right, um, Or then laws that are equal for everybody, but not enforced equally. Uh, especially for the magistrate. So two different kinds of laws of special interest. Number six. I know I feel like I'm flying through this. I'm sorry if this is like... I will spend a little bit more time on this one. Despotism. Despotism. What's interesting is that the word uh, despotes in Greek doesn't have a negative connotation. Our Lord Jesus is called uh, a despot, a despotate. Uh, in, in the Greek, but by the time we get to Revolutionary War times, it becomes a very negative thing. Despotism and tyranny uh, uh, were kind of synonymous. What is despotism? It's simply the accumulation of power. Despotism is the accumulation of power. Now, f- to point this out, I'm not just speaking as politically a conservative that wants small government. Okay? There is a biblical principle behind this, and I want you to see this. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11, my, the, the, the preface on chapter 11 for my Bible, I'm using a new King James, says that Solomon's heart turns from the Lord. Chapter 11 is where Solomon takes on so many wives, so many concubines, and before long, he's given over to idolatry. Chapter 10 is probably the climax of Israel. Like Israel was being a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. Nations, Gentiles were coming to Jerusalem to worship God. The, the, the best of Israel is in 1 Kings chapter 10, where the Queen of Sheba comes and she praises God. And then right after that, Solomon, I mean, you, you have this mountaintop and then Solomon ruins it because of, of all of the wives that he took on and he, uh, turned his, uh, they turned his heart to other gods. That's often how we read it, isn't it? That he failed as a king because he failed religiously and in the home before he failed as a magistrate. But I would submit to you, he already failed as a magistrate before he failed religiously or in the sphere of the family. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 28. Well, go back to 26. Ah, 24. Just, you know, why not? All the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present uh, again, nations were coming to Jerusalem, approaching the throne of God, the, the, and they're bringing articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. So economically, things are going great. But verse 28. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt in Keva. The king's merchants bought them in Keva at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and horses 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of of Syria. I would submit to you, brethren, that this is the beginning of uh, Solomon's downfall. He is becoming a despot here. He's accumulating for himself power that was not his to have. Why do I say that? 
Deuteronomy 17, 16, which was given to kings. This is the place where they were told to copy the law of God. So Solomon should have copied this down and remembered what God's law says to kings in Deuteronomy 17, 16. What does this say? Speaking of the king, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Solomon does the very thing that God's law in Deuteronomy 17 said not to do. Before he got involved with all the women, before his heart was turned religiously away from God, he became a tyrant before he became an an idolater. And so we have this biblical principle that despotism should be resisted. We should not be endorsing uh, any kind of despotism, any kind of accumulation of power, which I would argue that there's two ways that you can uh, be a despot. You can have the magistrate acquire power, or you can take the power away from the people. This is why I am an advocate of the Second Amendment, by the way. Because the moment that the uh, Second Amendment is repealed, the moment you take uh, means of the people away from protecting themselves, that is a form of despotism, where they're accumulating for themselves power in that the people can no longer protect themselves from either the government or just from their own uh, constituent or their neighbors. So despotism ought to be resisted. All right, are we on number seven? I didn't number them. That was a mistake. Number seven, I believe. Seventh category of this taxonomy of tyranny. Creation or administering immoral laws. I know that seems kind of obvious, right? Not just the creation, but the administering immoral laws. Um, A lot of passages that we could look to, but passages that speak of perverting justice. If you're, um, we got to look at least one of them. Go, Go with me to Psalm 94, Psalm 94, verse 20. Psalm 94, verse 20. That And this would probably refer more to not just the creation of laws, but the enacting of laws. In other words, the civil magistrate himself has a duty to resist wickedness. And we should remind them of that duty. That not just the creation, but the administration of immoral laws, whether it be appointing uh, wicked judges, or whether it be police officers who are not practicing righteously. What does Psalm 94 verse 20 say? Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? Now, this is is legal jargon here. This is speaking of the civil magistrate. This is not just a metaphor. Verse 21. They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense. And so we have this perception here that this ought not to happen. Similarly, we see in Isaiah 10, verse 1. If you want to go with me very briefly, Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 1. This notion that uh, the law must be upheld, must be held correctly. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. In other words, those magistrates who make wicked laws. Not just laws that are uh, of special interest, but wicked laws. Woe to the magistrate who makes wicked laws, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. Woe to them. Woe to them. And so I have no problem telling a police officer when I see him doing something that is immoral, you are going to answer to God when you do that. That is a form of resistance. That uh, if police officers are going to cart out people like they did in Canada, like they did in other places, 
that the people of God said, we're going to worship, and if you're going to haul us to jail, fine, do it, but we're going to do it, and we're going to call you to account for that, that's resistance. Then any kind of administering of immoral laws should be resisted. Another category I don't think gets talked about a lot, but I think it needs to be, would be number eight. We need to resist arbitrary laws. Laws that are arbitrary. Now this is true in all spheres, by the way. A lot of this you can make uh, application from one sphere to another sphere. And this is a good, good way to illustrate this. I'll use the, the home sphere first of all. I love my wife's curly hair. Don't look at her because then she'll get embarrassed. Love her curly hair. What if I were to make a law, a rule, say, honey, I demand you have you straighten your hair every day. Well, it's not forcing her to sin, right? What if we went with that logic? If we went with the logic, you, you have to submit, same word is used of husbands and, or wives to husbands as uh, uh, citizens to the magistrate. So if we have to submit in one sphere, we have to submit in the other sphere. It's not a, it's not a sin for me to, to command that. That's not a sinful command, rather. Does she have to do it? Seems kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? What if I said, you have to be home. You cannot, I demand that you're at home at such and such a time. That way, the food can be ready for the family. Our society would say, man, that sounds like a a wicked tyrant at home, doesn't it? Can I make such a rule? It seems kind of arbitrary. One of the the strangest stories in the Bible, I think, is, is Saul when he makes a rash vow. Benjamin, his son, had just conquered the enemy, he, he and his partner, and without knowing what his, his father said, his father says, we, you're not allowed to eat anything until we have gotten our victory. Benjamin did not hear this. Benjamin gets some honey, and it brightened his eyes, the text said. And you know, it turns out that Saul finds out, and Saul was ready to kill his own son because his own son did not hear the arbitrary law saying that we're not going to rest, we're not going to eat anything until we've had success. I, that I could, in other words, that Saul can claim victory for himself. He was ready to kill his own son, and what happened? All the officers of the army said to Saul, that ain't going to happen. They interposed, they resisted Saul. They said, Saul, we're not, you're not going to kill your son, you're not going to kill the prince. That was a stupid thing that you just did, and we're not going to let you do it. This is in uh, 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. The troops resisted Saul. Now, this is important because we're coming to a place in our society where uh, laws have been dictated in a very arbitrary manner. But it's not just laws. It happens to be in uh, all kinds of professions where, uh, like the, uh, the DSM-5, the, the, what does that stand for? Uh, for those that are in the counseling field to uh, figure out, uh, you know, the, the pathology of someone who has in uh, uh, psych- uh, psychiatry some kind of, of condition, it would go in the DSM, and they're now up to the fifth edition, the DSM-5. Um, you know how, how politicized that thing is because it used to be homosexuality was considered a pathology uh, a, a condition of sickness. Um, transgenderism or transvestitism used to be considered that it was a condition of sickness. Now, of course, it's accepted in our society, and that leaks into places like the DSM-5, not because they have any research to validate that, but for arbitrary reasons. And so you have these things happening in all parts of society, that when the government, the magistrate, rules with arbitrary rules, they need to be resisted. 
And there were there are a lot of controversies that we could bring up. I could bring up issues like uh, masking. Is that effective or not? And I'm not going to have the debate now. I just want to let you know that some would categorize that as a matter of conscience because the data would seem to be at the very least in conflict. There's con- conflicting data that says it's good, it's bad. The point is, it's hard to follow the science and trust the science when the scientists themselves have been politicized and when they are ruling by arbitrary laws. When you have so much of politics being affected by uh, society rather than society being affected by science, uh, unbiased science, that's where we get the arbitrary laws that should be resisted if they are absolutely arbitrary. I know I'm kind of getting into touchy area. I don't want to open a can of worms, but I'm just using that as an example that could be a potential example for our time. Number nine, this is another one that I did not hear of until I started considering the story of Daniel. The ninth category is when you're commanded to disobey conscience. Now, I just disobey the law of God. When you're commanded to disobey conscience, you should resist. And Daniel chapter 6 is a great example of this. And we're not going to look at it because we're running short on time. But Daniel 6 is a wonderful example of this. That Daniel's enemies knew that the only way that they could get Daniel is if they got him according to his own law, the law of God. And what was Daniel doing? He was doing something that was not prescribed, or rather not commanded in the law of God. What was he doing? He was praying towards Jerusalem at a window three times a day. And it's three times a day I want to talk about for a second. Because we do have in 2 Chronicles 6 and 1 Kings 8 the, the, the notion that when you're in exile, you pray towards Jerusalem. Not only does that speak of your desire to be in God's presence, because that's where the temple is, but also there was a, a, a promise that if you do that, God will bring you back. Why would Daniel pray at a window? Not really sure, except he wants to be able to visualize Jerusalem, perhaps. But it's the three times a day that I want to focus on. Likely, this notion of praying three times a day comes out of a passage in Psalm 55. Turn with me to Psalm 55, verse 17. If it was a command of God for Daniel, then we ought to be praying three times a day. I would submit to you, he was not doing it as a as a moral obligation of God, but he had a conscientious, for him it was a desire that he was of conscience he had to do. Psalm 55, 17 says, uh, verse 16, As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me. A fitting you know, passage of scripture if you're in exile. Then verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. If you're in a desperate time in exile, and you're told to pray, to, toward, toward Jerusalem, and he sees a passage like this, probably gripped by it, he says, I'm going to commit, I'm going to vow to God, I will pray three times a day. That's his conscientious, um, uh, that's his conscience weighing in on him that he has to do this. Now, I can hear the evangelicals now. Daniel, just go to your closet and pray. You don't have to pray and open at the window, do you? Well, we have not heard that. Had our modern-day evangelicals been around him, they said, this is not the battle you need to pick, Daniel. All right, let's put your ammo in things that really matter on gospel issues. But for Daniel, he says, I'm going to go I'm going to go the lion's den because I have a conscious reason for praying at the window where people can see me three times a day. He was willing to resist for the sake of conscience. 
I think that needs to, to weigh on this. That when you are commanded to disobey conscience, you have a dutiful, uh, uh, a dutiful right to resist that. Let me also caveat with this last one that some of these you might choose for prudence sake not to resist. Would Daniel have been wrong if he said, you know what, there might be more prudent way to go about this and maybe he wasn't so conscious bound to go to his closet and pray? Perhaps. Maybe prudence would say, uh, it would be better for me right now to pull back. Then again, maybe not. And that's where we have to be very careful here. We have to weigh uh, both the wisdom of God as well as the law of God. The last category I have of dutiful resistance uh, or uh, resisting all unlawful things is a category that you will not find in the Bible. And that is uh, when there is totalitarian control. Totalitarian control where the state seeks to assert itself in the place of God. Where the state seeks to establish its own gospel. Where the state itself, the, the party, promises its own heaven, its own version of utopia. Christians have a duty to resist that. Now, I say that this is not in the Bible because the authors of the Bible could never conceive of what is required for a totalitarian regime to to work. The kind of propaganda that is required, the kind of technology, the kind of technology that China has right now for facial recognition and that kind of software... Uh, read 1984, it was built on a, a premise of technology. Read, uh, read, read most post-apocalyptic kind of novels, it's all built on technology. This is why it's a category that its specifics were not mentioned, but the principles behind what goes into totalitarianism uh, is all throughout Scripture. So some of those principles would be the following. That totalitarianism rejects God as the ultimate authority. It has to. If any kind of totalitarian state says, well, there is a government, but above the government there's God, then the subjects can always appeal to God rather than the government. This is where where, where the uh, revolutionary flag that says appeal to heaven, it wasn't a flag that says we need to pray to God. It was a flag that says if all else fails, we still have God who is over all things, and we appeal to him for our rights. So if you know what flag I'm talking about, it has the big pine tree uh, it's uh, appeal to heaven. Uh, it was that notion that uh, there is always a higher authority that we can appeal to. The totalitarian state would say, we are God. In so many words, but they would say that. There is no higher authority, which is directly opposed to Romans 13, because Romans 13, 1 and 2 says that all authority is given from God, and he is the absolute authority. And so the very notion that a totalitarian regime would reject God as its ultimate authority is one reason why it should be rejected. It also forces syncretism, which is where you take a little bit of this religion and tie it in with a state. Um, did, you, did you know that there is a new uh, CCP, you know, Communist China-approved version of the Bible? They submitted a portion of it. I could not believe it. John chapter 8 says this in the CC, uh, CCP-approved version. And this is a, a disputed text of Scripture anyhow, whether it's uh, original or not, but I'm not going to get into that. But it's the woman um, uh, uh, caught in adultery, and you know, he who has the you know, first sin cast the first stone. Here's what they read. When the crowd dis- disappeared, Jesus stoned the sinner to death, saying, I, too, am a sinner. But if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. 
so many problems with that translation. It's not a translation. So many problems with that propaganda. Jesus being a sinner for one. But what would be behind that but say, look, you need to submit to the law. Even Jesus submitted to the law. Always obey the state. That's what's behind it because totalitarianism will always co-op religion to make it work for the party. It inevitably turns into idolatry. It says there is no God. We are God. Therefore, worship us or worship how we demand. So they try to remove God as much as possible. They are the highest law. They are the highest authority. They are the religious authority as well. And then lastly, they preach a false gospel. They say, if you trust in the state, we will give you everything. We will give you utopia. We will give you all the assurances that you'll ever need if you just trust in the state. It is a false gospel. It preaches its own gospel, its own eschatology. It forces its subject to swallow the message or you pay the price. Either you go along or you get killed. And it's a desire for a man-made utopia and it's achieved by pragmatic uh, practices and it's dead set against scripture. For example, uh, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, speaks of private property. That's why you have the command, do not steal. That implies private property. But the moment that a totalitarian regime says there is no more private property, they've gone against the law of God. So they're trying to uh, go against what is clearly set in the, the law of God. They're trying to set up a new Eden, and they're trying to do it apart from God and how he would achieve salvation. So while I might say that totalitarianism is not expressly condemned in the Bible, the principles that prop up that kind of, uh, necessary, or that, that kind of system uh, are necessarily contained there, and it must be resisted. I think that goes without saying. The problem is, if you don't resist in the small things, that you have a dutiful resistance to resist unlawful things, will you have much of a chance to resist when it's a large thing? That's the issue. Um, I, don't, I don't have an opportunity to go back and read to you some of the things uh, of, uh, of... I'll give you one example off the top of my head. I, I can't remember who it was, but uh, when Soviet Russia was becoming a thing, uh, you know, commerce could have a sign on their, on their window, workers of the world unite. And he didn't, the, the shop owner didn't agree with it, but he knew if I just went along, I wouldn't get hassled by the government. Before long, he had nothing. The government took control of everything. He said, we had a chance to resist, and we chose not to. Well, brethren, I want to conclude with a hymn that is not in our hymnal, but it was a Revolutionary War hymn. It's called Chester. I don't know why it's called Chester, but that's what it's called. And I want to read to you what it says and, and understand that to resist things that are unlawful is it's, it's a, a pious thing for a Christian to do. It says, Let tyrants shake their iron rod and slavery clank her galling chains. We fear them not. We trust in God. New England's God forever reigns. When God inspired us for the fight, their ranks were broke, their lines were forced, their ships were shattered in our sight our, or, or swiftly driven from our coast. The foe comes on with haughty stride. Our troops advance with martial noise. Their veterans flee before our youth. And generals yield to beardless boys. And here's how it ends. What grateful offering shall we bring? What shall we render to the Lord? Loud hallelujahs let us sing and praise his name on every chord. In other words, the, the church at the time of the Revolutionary War understood that it was, it was a good thing. It was a righteous thing to resist unlawful magistrates. 
And they could bring this into their, their liturgy at church. This is a hymn that was sung in church. They would sing amen at the end of this. And I, I left out a few uh, uh, stanzas just because they had more to do with, the, you know, calling imprecations down upon the enemy, which I'm fine with, but just not necessary here. The point is, there's a place for this in the church. Historically, this has been true. And we ought not to be afraid of saying such. Well, rather, that's, we, we've gone an hour. Uh, hopefully, I've carried your conscience on this, that yes, we should subject or, or be in submission to all things lawful, but we also have a dutiful resistance to all things unlawful. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty things, and we understand that as times get more difficult, you could be calling us to suffer persecution, which you and your word calls a blessing. Lord, help us to understand where those lines are, what they are, what they ought to be, and how we ought to honor you no matter what. Lord, give us courage, give us wisdom. May your name be glorified in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brethren, you're dismissed. Good to see you.